Um, I'm not sure if anybody's remembered, but the one thing I haven't done is told my joke. But there's a reason. It's because, you see, I come up here at the end of all of these readings, and it's, it's quite obvious. You know, that's, it would be so inappropriate. And I mean that sincerely, so I'm going to ask for early time tomorrow before we read the scripture, because this is, you know, it's a heavy book. It's a, it's a dark and somber town, this town of Amos. It's not a sort of pleasant holiday resort. It's kind of gloomy. It's rather somber. And uh, this particular reading, I think maybe more than some of the others, very quickly remember verses 1 and 2 of the beginning, and I just want to give you a quick scan of the town again so we know where we are. We've had the introduction of the prophet who speaks, verse 1, and then the Lord who roars, verse 2. God is presented as a lion and his roaring is frightening and his roaring is destructive because the shepherd's pasture grounds mourn and the summit of Carmel dries up. And then as the lion roars in chapter 1, he roars against six of the outlying heathen nations. In fact, chapter 1, there's five of them. No, there's six of them. And then, big pardon, there are five of them. And then chapter 2, another one of the heathen nations. And then he picks on Judah and he roars against Judah. And then from verse 6 onwards to the end of the book, he roars against Israel. And he brings this terrible prophecy of judgment against Israel. And remember the two areas of sin that God calls attention to amongst his people are, number one, their hypocrisy in worship, their lack of righteousness, and their, their injustice towards the poor, their lack of justice. I use those two words because I've said to you before that uh, chapter 5, verse 24, which calls for righteousness and justice, those are the two things God wants, and he doesn't find it amongst his people. And so he identifies those sins in chapter 2. Those are the eight oracles of judgment, and then chapters 3, 4, 5, and 6 are the three sermons of rebuke. The sermons are introduced by the phrase, hear this word, hear this word, hear this word. Chapter 3, against the entire family of Israel. Remember, this is the chapter where God calls in the Philistines and the Egyptians and says, you think you guys are bad? Let me show you a really wicked nation. Have a look at my people Israel and what they are doing. And then chapter 4, the cows of Bashan. The uh, women of Samaria who are just enjoying the comfort of their luxury and their wealth that has come on the backs of bowed down slaves and servants to the backs of the poor. They've oppressed the poor and they've become wealthy. And the prophecy of them going out and being led out with fish hooks and with meat hooks. And then uh, in verses 4 and 5, you remember of, of that chapter, chapter 4, he stands by the, the, the altar of Bethel and he acts like one of the priests and he says, why don't you come to church and sin? Why don't you come to Bethel and transgress? And then verses 6 to the end of chapter 4, you know, I've been talking to you. I've been roaring five times over. At least I've roared. I've roared and louder and louder and louder and you should have heard me, but you never turned back to me. And then the final of the three sermons is from, verse, from chapter, in chapters 5 and 6 where we begin with this this funeral dirge, God is not, he doesn't delight in this roaring. He doesn't delight in judging his people. And so his prophet speaks a funeral dirge for Israel. You'll remember in chapter 5, three times over, God says, Seek me, seek me, seek good and not evil that you may live. God is still offering, holding out the hand of, uh, of mercy, 
calling for repentance to his people, probably not as people as a nation because he will not revoke its punishment, chapter 2, but as people individually. Do you want to repent? I'm going to judge the whole lot. I'm going to judge the nation, but you individually, you can repent. Seek me in order that you might live. And then that funeral dirge, you remember halfway through the chapter becomes everybody's lamenting. The farmers, the streets, the the vineyards, the whole lot. And he speaks about the day of the Lord at the end of that chapter. He says, you know, you're looking forward to the day of the Lord, but it's not going to be a good day for you. And uh, chapter 5 finishes off, remember those idols. And can I just say, what are, the, what are the idols maybe in your life? You go and present grain offerings to God in verse 25, and then in verse 26 you go back home and worship the idols. And I think there's a challenge for us there. You know, God is the public God we serve, but who's the real God back home? Who are the idols that you worship there? You know, where do you go back to and find your satisfaction and your security and your identity at home? And then woe to those who are at ease in Zion, chapter 6, reclining on beds of ivory. God loathes the arrogance of David, of Jacob, and he detests the strongholds of Jacob. And then we come in verses 7, 8, and the beginning of verse 9 to the five visions of judgment. So the five visions of judgment, and this evening I'd like to do verses seven, chapter 7 and 8, and then, God willing, if Jesus doesn't come tonight, which would be absolutely great. But if he doesn't, we'll do chapter eight, chapter 9 tomorrow, or if I don't die. Which also... I'm ready. I can't say that out loud in case my wife ever listens to this. It'll be great. All right, so... We're going to do four visions today because the fifth vision comes in chapter 9, but chapters 7 and 8. Now, quick comment. We mustn't make the mistake of thinking that Amos is written in chronological order. What we've seen so far is uh, God, sorry, Amos relating God's message to the people. Amos is speaking for the Lord. What we have in these five visions of judgment is Amos is speaking with the Lord. So it may very well be that in actual fact... Um, these were gathered together not because of any sort of chronological order, but because they, they give the background to the whole of Amos's prop- uh, prophecy. Because we're going to see as we look at the visions, Amos moves from and God moves from an appeal for mercy and a granting of mercy to eventually just a statement and a carrying out of judgment. Now the first four visions, if you look down in your Bibles, chapter 7 verses 1 to 3, Chapter 7, verses 4 to 6, chapter 7, verses 7 to 9, and then chapter 8, verses 1 to 3. I'm not sure if those are in the notes or not. And there are certain similarities. Each one of them starts off, in actual fact, when Ben read it, I I rather liked, um, was that the ESV? This is what the Lord showed me, I think. Is that right? This is what the Lord showed me. And there's that consistency. Thus the Lord showed me. This is what the Lord showed me. That's consistent all the way through the four of them. And behold, every single time. All four of them, and behold, in all four of those visions, Amos speaks. In all four of them, Amos speaks. In all four of them, there is some symbol and there is some interpretation. But it's interesting, and this is obviously very deliberate, that there are differences between the four of them as well. You'll notice in the first two of them, Amos is the one who initiates speech. God is doing something and Amos cries out and then God talks. That's in the first two. But in the second two, Jehovah is the one who initiates speech, not Amos. In the first two, Amos asks God something. In the second two, God asks Amos something. In the first two, Amos intercedes. 
and Yahweh pronounces mercy. In the second two, there is no intercession of Amos, and Yahweh pronounces judgment. So it's quite clear that even though there are four um, visions here, and the four visions go together because the fifth vision is different, there's no doubt at all that there's actually two pairs of visions. The first two visions go together. The second two visions go together. The first two visions, there's Amos interceding and Yahweh forgiving and relenting. But in the second two, there's, there's Amos describing something and God pronouncing judgment. So you've got vision, intercession, and mercy. And then vision, question, answer, and judgment. So you've got two pairs of um, visions here. All right. Right in the middle of these, you've got that little interlude, verses 10 to 17 of chapter 7. And I'll, I'll make comment about that at the appropriate place. So let's work our way through these visions. Let's look first of all at the, the first pair of visions. Right? Vision number 1 is verses 1 to 3 of chapter 7. The Lord showed me, and he was forming a locust swarm, when the spring crop began to sprout. Now, locusts immediately in the minds of good Israelites and Jews would have spoken of God's judgment. Uh, what, what prophet comes to mind when you think of locusts? Joel, all right? Joel speaks about the locust swarm that comes and just devours everything. And, and locust swarms are good pictures because human beings are totally, they are, they are totally impotent against them. There's just so many of them. There's nothing whatsoever they can do. And, and they completely devastate and demolish everything. And so there's this locust swarm being formed. Will you notice in verse 1, God was the one who formed the locust swarm. It's interesting that the locust swarm comes in the spring crop, which is after the king's mowing. Now that's significant. You see, the king has already taken his tax. The first crop gets cut and goes to the king. The second crop is coming up for me and my family. And it's that second crop that is being devastated. The king's going to be fine. The people are in trouble. And it's at this stage that Amos cries out as he sees the, the, the devastation of these locusts and he realizes that this symbolizes God's judgment. Look at verse uh, 2, halfway through, he cries out, Lord Jehovah, please pardon. How can Jacob stand? For he is small. It's very interesting, the basis of his cry. Notice, notice, notice the basis of his cry. He doesn't say, remember Moses? Moses said, Lord, on the basis of your reputation, don't destroy the people. All the other nations are going to mock you. He doesn't make an appeal on the basis of God's reputation. He doesn't make an appeal on the basis of the covenant. Lord, these are your covenant people. He makes an appeal on the basis of Jacob is so small. And it's possible. One of the reasons that uh, he, he, he said, Lord, Jacob is so small is because one of the themes in the book is that the small people are being squashed. So maybe he's saying, Lord, you've, you've, you've given me this prophecy where I'm, I'm appealing on behalf of the small people in the land. Jacob is so small, he can't stand. So what does the Lord do? Verse 3, the Lord relents. So the Lord changed his mind about this. It shall not be. Then notice the second vision. It's very similar. This time Amos is shown a fire. And this fire first consumes the great deep. There was a mythical understanding in those days that there's a great reservoir of water under the earth and that supplies all of the rivers and the springs. So first of all, the fire dries up that deep and then it starts to burn up the land and Amos cries out. He makes an appeal to the Lord again, Lord, please stop. How can Jacob stand? For he is small. Again, his appeal is based on the fact Jacob is very small, God. 
and you're asking me to cry out on, the, on, on behalf of the poor and the small. Jacob is small. Please relent. And again, the Lord stays his hand and doesn't send judgment. So what is the underlying lesson from these two visions? It's simply this, and I'm not sure if it's in your notes. I don't have a copy anymore. But God mercifully withholds judgment from his people. You see, the people of God deserve judgment. Judgment is stored up, but for a time that judgment is withheld by Yahweh. And, and, and it's withheld because Amos is standing in the gap. Amos is interceding. Remember, if a prophet cries out against a people, first of all, a prophet ought to have cried out for the people. All right? Did you hear the difference there? Because Amos really, in this whole book, I'm sure you'll agree, he's crying out against the people. He's telling them, God is going to hammer you. But before he cried out against the people, he cried out for the people. He said, Lord, Lord, please, can't you forgive them? Can't you stay back your hand? And to me, it's a wonderful lesson for us as Christians. You know, as we cry out against sin, we better be crying out for sinners. I think there's a good lesson for us there. Remember that even though the theme of this book is judgment, there's over and over again offers of mercy, little themes of mercy. Remember the fact that God is a roaring lion, in actual fact, is a, has an element of mercy there. Because the only thing more scary than a roaring lion is a silent lion. So there's mercy, even in the roaring of God. Chapter 3, remember God reveals his purposes to his people through his prophets. God tells them. He warns them. Chapter 4, God says, you know, I did this, but you didn't return. I did this, but you didn't return. So there's these, these offers of mercy over and over again. And maybe what you have here in these first two visions is, 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 is Amos is seeing these visions and God is relenting and God is staying his hand. God is offering mercy. He's offering mercy. He's offering mercy. But then, the second pair of visions, God finally extends judgment. And in these Visions, Amos doesn't speak to intercede. He simply answers questions that God puts to him. So first of all, verses 7 to 9. Thus he showed me, and behold, the Lord was standing by a vertical wall with a plumb line in his hand. The Lord said to me, What do you see, Amos? And he said, A plumb line. Then the Lord said, Behold, I am about to put a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. The high places of Isaac will be desolated, and the sanctuaries of Israel laid waste then I will rise up against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. Here's the picture. The Lord has in his hand a plumb line. All right. You, you all know what a plumb line is? Do I need to understand it? Does anybody not? Please put your hands up clearly so I can see. Okay, plumb line is simply a string, and on the end of the string is a heavy weight. Uh, I think the word plumb comes from plumbus, lead, Latin. Am I right? Oh, not impressive. That's quite impressive for a guy from Zimbabwe, eh? All right, so there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a lead weight on a plumb line, and of course that gives you the vertical. And you can take that plumb line and you can put it against a wall, and you can see, you can test the wall against the vertical uh, string of that plumb line. So the Lord is holding a plumb line in his hand, and he is standing next to a wall that, that is literally a wall built true to plumb. And he's now going to test that wall that was built true to plumb with the plumb line. Now, of course, that's important because a wall that is, is starting to, to sag, you know, you're in trouble. And Amos is asked what he sees, and he says, Lord, I see a plumb line. And then the Lord gives the interpretation of that plumb line of the vision in verses 8 and 9. He says, I'm going to put a plumb line next to my people Israel. 
And I think what the Lord is saying is they were built true to plumb. They were built vertically. Now I'm going to test with this plumb line, are they still vertical? That's the picture there. And of course, they're not going to be. And God says, I will spare them no longer. Remember, verse, uh, verse 3 and verse 6, God spared them. But now verse 8, I will spare them no longer. And God pronounces judgment. He ju- pronounces judgment in verse 9 against notice. The sanctuaries, i.e. the places of worship, and the house of Jeroboam, i.e. the place of power, the place of worship and the place of power, God is going to extend his judgment. Notice here in vision number three, there is no mercy. There is only judgment. The second of these uh, visions, the second of the second pair of visions, is in chapter eight, verses one to three. But before we get there, we have this strange interlude, verses 10 to 17, and it's, and it's a historical interlude. It may very well be that this was added by somebody else, maybe one of um, Amos's followers, because it's about Amos. It is not Amos himself speaking. But it's an interaction between Amos and Amaziah. Amaziah was a priest at Bethel. He's introduced to us in verse 10. Notice what he does. He sends word to Jeroboam, the king of Israel, and he says, you know, Amos has been conspiring against you. He's picked up the last little bit of verse 9. I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is unable to endure all his words because Amos said Jeroboam will die by the sword and Israel will certainly go from its land into exile. Notice he says Amos says this. Not God says this. Amos says this. He reports Amos to the king and then he speaks to Amos himself. Look at verse 12. Then Amaziah said to Amos, Go, you seer. It's interesting, he calls him a seer. Was he being sarcastic? Or was he thinking, you know, maybe he is speaking God's word? Don't know. Could be either one. Go, you seer, flee away to the land of Judah, and there eat bread, and there do your prophesying, but no longer prophesy at Bethel, for it is a sanctuary of the king and a royal residence. Now, a couple of things I'd like you to notice there. Where does Amos come from? comes from Judah. From Tekoa. Remember Tekoa, small town, small village, southeast of Bethlehem. He comes from Judah. So basically what what Amaziah is saying, listen, go back to Judah. If you want to prophesy against us, go back to Judah and prophesy against us, and, and they'll pay you for what you do. You'll get your bread there. But we don't want to hear you. We don't want to listen to your prophesying anymore. And, and verse 13, no longer prophesy at Bethel. Why not? It is a sanctuary of the king and a royal residence. Notice how Bethel is described by Amaziah. It is a sanctuary of the king and a royal residence. Now remember, there's no mistakes in the scripture. Words are used very precisely. For Amaziah, do listen carefully, dear friends, the power to be acknowledged was the power of the king. This was not a sanctuary of Jehovah. This was a sanctuary of the king. This is not a residence of God. This was a royal residence. You see, this was the essence of Israel's sin. God was there for their convenience. They were not there for God's worship. Why did Bethel exist? It existed for the king. It was the king's sanctuary. It was a royal dwelling. It wasn't Jehovah's dwelling. I've got this this, uh, statement in my notes here. Jehovah had been turned 
from being a sovereign king to be worshipped into a tribal deity to be placated and manipulated. Can I just say, I think many Christians do that. You know, Jehovah, God, goes from being a sovereign God to be worshipped with all of our being to a sort of tribal deity that we can placate by doing a few Christian things, going to church, paying our tithes, singing our songs. And if we do that, it's like rubbing a genie's lamp and he'll come out and say, I'm so pleased that you worship me. What can I do for you? And is, is God there for our convenience? Or are we there for God's glory? As far as Amaziah was concerned, listen, Amos, get it right. This place is not for God. This place is for the king. And so how does Amos respond to him? Then Amos replied to Amaziah, I'm not a prophet, nor am I the son of a prophet. And I think what he's saying there is, you know, I, I, that's not in my family line. I'm not brought up to do this thing. I'm, I'm just, in fact, all I am is a herdsman and a grower of sycamore trees. Why am I prophesying? Verse 15, but the Lord took me from following the flock and the Lord said to me, go prophesy to my people, Israel. Remember back in chapter something, verse something else? Do you remember that? Chapter 3, verse 8, the Lord has spoken, who can but prophesy? God came to me and he spoke to me and he says, I want you to go and speak to them. What could I do? I just had to go. Now you hear the word of the Lord, Amaziah, verse 16. You are saying you shall not prophesy against Israel, nor shall you speak against the house of Isaac. So what does he go on to do? What does Amaziah go on to do? He just said to Amaziah, Amaziah, you're saying to me I shouldn't prophesy. Next thing he does is, he prophesies. Therefore, thus says the Lord, your wife will become a harlot in the city. Your sons and your daughters will fall by the sword. Your land will be parceled up by a measuring line, and you yourself will die upon unclean soil. And Israel will certainly go from this land into exile. Remember, earlier on, God said, I gave you the Nazarites and I gave you the prophets. And you said to the Nazarites, in Irish, have a beer, have a Guinness. Yeah, have a Guinness. And you said to the prophets, shut up. And Amaziah looks at Amos and he says, shut up. And Amos says, no, I'm not going to shut up. The lion has roared who shall not fear. God has spoken. I must prophesy. And so he prophesies against Amaziah. And obviously he's talking about what's going to happen when the, when the Assyrians eventually do overrun Jerusalem, uh, uh, Israel, where uh, Amaziah's wife is going to be taken probably as a prostitute for the troops. Amaziah's children are going to be killed. Uh, his land, which to the Jews was, was so, remember, that never moved out of the family. It's going to be divided up and just given to whoever knows. And you yourself will die in unclean soil. Oh, and by the way, what I said before is still going to happen. Israel is going to die. Sorry, Israel is going to be taken at the end of verse 17 there from this land into exile. Now, why is this here? Any thoughts? Why is this here? We just had the vision of the plumb line. God is testing the plumb line. And why do you think Amaziah comes in here? I commented to somebody at supper time that the quietest you all are are now. But two minutes after we finish this meeting, you're just such a noisy bunch. <laughs> no, why is that, I wonder? <laughs> why do you think? Why do you think there's this plumb line and then there's Amaziah? Go ahead. 
Okay, so there's the great answer. You didn't hear it. But he's the leader of the people. So in a sense, when, when um, Amaziah sort of stands up and says, you go away, it's as though the Lord says, okay, let me just test. Let me just bring that problem line. Amaziah, how are you doing? Uh-oh. Uh-oh. There's the vertical. There's Amaziah. Amaziah, you're in trouble. Your wife's going to be a prostitute. Your kids are going to be killed. You're going to be taken to a foreign land. Your land is going to be parceled up, and your nation is going to be taken into exile. I think what's happening there is that the plumb line is being used against Amaziah representing the people. And with that we come to the fourth, which is the second of the second pair of the visions. Chapter 8, verses 1 to 3. Then the Lord showed me, and behold, there was a basket of summer fruit. And he said to me, what do you see, Amos? Remember the second two visions, God initiates, Jehovah initiates speech, and he initiates by asking Amos, what do you see? And Amos replies, and he says, a basket of summer fruit. And the Lord said to me, the end has come for my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. That's the same as what he said earlier on in verse, uh, verse 8 of chapter 7. I will spare them no longer. So there's no more intercession. There's no more mercy. There's no more God changing his mind. He says, I will spare them no longer. And then verse, well, let me, let me stop there for a moment before I get to verse 3. What is the, the, the summer fruit and the end? I think there's two possibilities here. Number one, the summer fruit may well have been the early harvest which was presented to God with the hope and the prayer that, there would be, that this was the beginning of an extended harvest. So in a sense, it was almost like the first fruits. You know, here we are, Lord, because we hope that there's lots more to come. So the, the basket of summer fruit was, this is the beginning. And God says, no. This is the end. Israel thought, great, God is on our side. Things are going well. This is the beginning of a good time. God says, things aren't going well and things are not good with me. This is the end. So that's the one possible uh, symbolic connection with the summer fruit and the end. But the other is apparently in Hebrew, there's a verbal connection. The, the Hebrew word for summer fruit is very similar to the Hebrew word for end. So this summer fruit symbolizes not beginning, but the end. The end has come for my people I will spare them no longer. And then look at verse 3. And verse 3 is a powerful, powerful verse. The songs of the palace will turn to wailing in that day, declares the Lord. Many will be the corpses. In every place, they will cast them forth in silence. Notice the progression of, of sound in verse 3. How, how does the sound theme progress in verse 3? How does it begin? Songs. Wailing. And at the end? Silence. Silence. Ben, please read yours because the, the last part about the corpses was brilliant. ESV. The songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day, declares the Lord God. So many dead bodies, they are thrown everywhere. Silence. So many dead bodies, they are thrown everywhere. Silence. Um, you know, Obviously, when the prophet speaks and, and, and the Lord, the Holy Spirit, guides him to choose his words, these are very, very deliberate. We started off with all of this singing, and then it turned to wailing, and then all there was, dead bodies and silence. So we've looked at the first two pairs of visions. We're going to come to the last one tomorrow. But what I'd like to do now as we um, draw this... Uh, this message to an end is just to have a look at the end of chapter 8. 
So remember, we've got the four visions. We'll pick up the fifth vision tomorrow. First two visions, there's some mercy. Second two visions, there's no mercy. The plumb line has been placed against them, and God says, I'm not going to hold back. Now the Lord addresses himself to his people, and he addresses himself to his people under judgment. And I have just divided verses 4 to 14 into three sections. Verses 4 to 6, God describes his people. Verses 7 to 10, he describes his judgment. And verses 11 to 14, he describes their hopelessness. So he describes the people, he describes his judgment, and he describes their hopelessness. First of all, the description of the people. And look at the description here, verses 4 to 6. And one of the things you need to do as you go through Amos is to pick up the recurrent themes, the themes that pop up over and over again. Hear this, you who trample the needy. Way back in chapter 2, around about verse 6, 7, and 8, he talked about stomping on the heads of the poor in the dust. So the same thing at the beginning is here at the end. Hear this, you who trample the needy, to do away with the humble of the land. You're exploiting the poor. And this is what you say. When will the new moon be over, that we may sell grain? And the Sabbath, that we may open the wheat market, to make the bushel smaller and the shekel bigger, and to cheat with dishonest scales, so as to buy the helpless for money and the needy for a pair of sandals, and that we may sell the refuse of the wheat. What are they basically asking? What are they basically asking and what are they basically saying? And now I'm just going to wait for an answer. Can who go away? Can God go away? That would be a great summary. Can God go away? Or at least can we do our God thing and get it out the way so we can get back to what we really enjoy doing? There's a sense in which they're saying God gets in the way of business. When will the new moon be over? (laughs) We want to go back to selling grain. When will the Sabbath be over? We want to open the wheat market. Can't sell on the Sabbath. What time do you say the Sabbath finishes? Six o'clock. It's five to six. Do you think if we open a little bit early, do you think God will mind? Just a couple of minutes early. God's getting in the way of business. But notice, God is not just getting in the way of business. God is getting in the way of what type of business? Dishonest business. We want to make the shekel smaller. Sorry, make the bushel smaller. That's the volume. And the shekel bigger. So we want to sell less for more. We want to put dishonest scales on We want to put dishonest balances on the scales. Verse 6, we want to buy the helpless for money because they've got nothing else. They've They've got to sell themselves. The needy for a pair of sandals. We may sell the refuse of the wheat. We're going to take the second hand wheat and sell it to the poor. It's going back to this theme of exploiting the poor and social injustice. Basically, God is a nuisance. At least they're finally being honest. Amaziah was honest because he said, you know, this is the king's sanctuary. This is a royal residence. This place exists for the benefit of the king, not for the worship of God. God is getting in the way of our lives. He's getting in the way of our business. God is getting in the way of our dishonest business. Essentially like a Christian saying, man, I'm glad Sunday's over and I can go back to Monday. I can go back to gossiping at work. I hope you don't mind me being a bit blunt here. I can go back to sleeping with my boyfriend. I can go back to looking at my pornography. I can go back to getting angry. I can go back to partying with my friends. Thank goodness Sunday is over and God is out the way. That's really how people were described in these verses, verses 4 to 6. Is it any wonder 
that God was angry with them. God had become nothing more than a tame deity. They just sort of manipulated for their own convenience. And when he started getting in the way, they moved him over and they carried on with life. So God describes his people. Um, Verses 7 to 10, he describes his judgment. Verses 7 to 10, he describes his judgment. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob. What is the pride of Jacob? It's probably himself. Earlier on, Jacob's pride, God says, I detest the pride of Jacob. But it seems strange to bring that same meaning of the pride of Jacob here. So maybe, and if this doesn't make sense, then just blank me out for 30 seconds. But if you'd like to think deeper about this, God detested the pride of Jacob. That's down in um, chapter 6, verse 8. Maybe what he's saying is, back in 6 verse 8, I, I detest Jacob's arrogance in these things. But chapter 8 verse 7, I swear by the true pride of Jacob myself. I am the pride of Jacob. I am where Jacob ought to take pride. I think God is swearing by himself in verse 7 of chapter 8. I will never forget any of their deeds. Yo, that's tough. I don't think so. I think the pride of Jacob is, is God himself here, yeah, Tom. I really do. Look at the, the second part of verse 7. I will never forget any of their deeds. I've seen everything they've done. God will remember and God will hold them to account for every single thing that they have done. Conducting business, cheating a bit here, stealing a bit there, compromising here, and all apparently without any consequence because nobody seems to have noticed. But God has seen and God will remember every single sin. And what will be the result of that? Look at this terrible description of judgment in verse 8 down to verse 10. Because of this, because I've seen their sins and because they think that I'm some tribal deity that they can manipulate and that I am here for their convenience and that I get in the way of their living life that they really want to live, because of this, will not the land quake and everyone who dwells in it mourn? Now notice how big the lament for the funeral has gone. <laughs> Everybody now is lamenting. Indeed, all of it, all of the land will toss up like the Nile. So the same way that the Nile rises, the earth is going to rise, and the earth is going to be tossed about and subside like the Nile of Egypt. And it will come about in that day. And remember back in chapter 6, verse 18, you're waiting for the day of the Lord, but it's not going to be a good day for you. It will come about in that day, declares the Lord, that I will make the sun go down at noon. And... Um, Chapter something, verse something else. Remember, God was described as the one who turns the dawn into darkness. He turns light into darkness. Here God is saying, I'm going to make the sun go down at noon. I will make the earth dark in broad daylight. And I will turn your festivals into mourning and all of your songs into lamentation. And I will bring sackcloth on everybody's loins and baldness on everybody's head. And I will make it a time of mourning for an only son. And the end of it will be like a bitter day. Yeah, I mean, even the way I read those, it's just, it's hard, isn't it? It's hard. This is God's judgment against the sins of his people. 
because they treated him like some tribal deity. The end of it will be like a bitter day. And then finally, verses 11 to 14, he describes the hopelessness of the people when they come under his judgment. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord Jehovah, when I will send a famine on the land. A famine doesn't sound too bad compared to some of the other things God's going to send. Just a famine, I think we can handle that. Oh, not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather a famine for hearing the words of the Lord. What has Amaziah been saying to Amos? Shut up and go home. What do they say to the prophets that God had sent? Do not prophesy. What's God doing here? Okay. Okay. Are you tired of the roaring? Are you tired of the noise? God, forgive me. God, shut up. Shut up. Enough. What's happened? God has shut up. God's voice is no longer heard. There's a famine of God's word. We've got to be careful when we look at verse 11. We've got to get the context. The context is the context of Amos. But God says, all right, eventually the time's going to come. When you, you're tired of hearing me talking, fair enough, I'm going to stop. There's going to be a famine for hearing the word of the Lord. Now look at the effects of that. Is that really such a bad thing? You know, if God stops roaring, is that such a bad thing? Verse 12, people will stagger from sea to sea, and they'll go from the north to the east. They're going to go backwards and forwards, seeking the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. The very people who said, God, stop talking to us through your prophets, we've had enough, are going to be going all over the land, just seeking for one word from God. Won't God speak again? But God is not going to speak again. Verse 13 is, is pregnant with meaning. It's, it's profound, and I encourage you to think about it. Um, just think about it deeply. In that day, in the day when there's a famine for the word of the Lord, in the, in the day when God doesn't speak anymore, what's going to happen? The beautiful virgins and the young men will faint from thirst. What's the picture there? Beautiful virgins. Think of two things. Number one, beauty, because they're beautiful. Number two, purity. They are virgins. Young men, what do we think about? We think of strength and we think of vitality. When God's word is gone and there's a famine of God's word, there is no longer any beauty, there is no longer any purity, there is no longer any strength, there is no longer any vitality. These things have gone. These things perish. You know, we, we've, uh, I made something yesterday, was it this morning, about, you know, this is the word of God, dear friends. This is... This is it's the life-giving word of God. And if God takes it away from us, there's no more purity and there's no more beauty and there's no more vitality and there's no more strength. And that was his judgment against Israel. Okay, you want me to shut up? I'm going to shut up. You want me to stop roaring? I'm going to stop roaring. And then you'll see how terrible the world is when God no longer speaks. And he ends off verse 14. As for those who swear by the guilt of Samaria, who say, as your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives. Basically, these are the false worship places. Those who are, 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 are staking their lives on false worship, they will fall and not rise again. There's no longer any roaring. There's just waiting. Just waiting 
for the lion to pounce. I'd like to close by saying this. All that is described here in terms of the judgment of God on sin, Jesus has taken on himself. You know, these pictures, the world crashed around Jesus. The ground, the firm ground on which he stood became like the Nile in torrent. For Jesus, his day was turned into darkness and his bright noonday sun set. And the deep gloom settled upon Jesus. Jesus' festal joy was turned into mourning. And for him, most certainly, it was a time of mourning for an only son. And Jesus entered into a world in which, for him, there was no word of God. There was no revelation. There was no purity. There was no beauty. There was no strength. There was no vitality. For Christ, these things were destroyed. And listen carefully, dear friends. Jesus experienced Amos 8 so that you and I don't have to experience Amos 8. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Father, these are just heavy chapters, and I will just have a sense, Father, of uh, this is terrible, and sometimes your word is terrible in the right sense of the word, and it's horrible in the right sense of the word, but it's your word, and it's good, and it's right, and it's important, and it's for us. These things are written for our encouragement upon whom the ends of the world have come. So, Father, we pray that we would listen that we would hear. Father, help us to fear the roar of the lion, but to fear even more the silence of the lion. Father, I do pray for dear friends here and dear brothers and sisters who possibly have got their little idols, Lord, and who maybe are treating you as some convenient tribal deity instead of worshipping you as the great and sovereign king. Oh, Father, Please may they seek you that they may live. We pray for the church, Father, here in Ireland and in Zimbabwe and around the world, where there is a great deal of religion, Lord. And yet where is justice and where is righteousness? Father, these are heavy things. Where are those who who mourn for the ruin of Joseph? and who cry out because of the lack of holiness in themselves as well as in the church. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you took upon yourself all of the agonies and the horrible picture of Amos chapter 8. And for you there was no word from your Father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we just thank you so much and we're overwhelmed on the one hand by a sense of the awfulness of this judgment but on the other hand we're overwhelmed by the awesomeness of your love and your mercy and your grace and we worship and we bless you and we thank you and we ask you Lord help us to be true to you in the power of the Spirit to the glory of your name oh we bless you In Jesus' wonderful and precious name, amen. Thank you so much, folks.